Just a brief together time together to read Scripture, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles, the Bibles that are in the pews there, because we're going to read in unison a section. And I've uh, got four quick announcements to make, so we're gonna, I'm going to try to uh, move at a steady clip here. But, um, but I love it for our boys and girls and all of us together to be able to hear God's great promises from our own lips even in a section, page 842, in these Pew Bibles, that's a bit obscure, I recognize. It's background for this part three today of looking at mission ignition. So it's background, but what is so vital about this background on page 842 of the Pew Bibles in Isaiah chapter 49 is that this whole section is one of those where the Messiah's mission is forecast Again, in this case, over 720 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus, and contains within it what the early apostles in the book of Acts proclaimed as the single greatest challenge for the church of their generation, which was to break out of ingrown thinking. It's all about me and my, my concerns Somebody used to joke about it in the Deep South years ago, us four and no more, the bless me club mentality. It, it, it addresses that directly, prophetically, and then in Acts chapter 13, it's proclaimed as the, as the motivational flame that ignites the redeemed people of God into their mission. So the wording is a bit obscure, but bear that in mind as background. We're going to read Isaiah 49, a fairly long section. I'd like to invite all of our boys and girls, everyone, to read it aloud with us. Isaiah 49, verses 7 through 16. And this is page 842 and 843 in the Bibles. Let's read at verse 7 in Isaiah 49. Let's read together. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. I'm going to break into our reading and ask you to take that first sentence of verse 9 and personalize it like this to say that we may say to the prisoners, go forth. Could you say that with me? That we may say to the prisoners, go forth. And now continue our reading. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on the desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. 
Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your son shall make haste. We're going to stop the reading at verse 16. And we thank God for this, this word today. Let's, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you today for the messianic mission. Now, Lord, translate it. Translate it, Lord, in our lives with fresh urgency and ignite your mission in our hearts for the glory of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, take a moment quickly and greet somebody near you with a warm welcome of peace in Christ. Then just some quick announcements before we release the children today. Thank you. Okay, thank you. You may be seated. Um, Man, how good it is to hear the, the stirring of fellowship. So grateful for each of you. I often say this, that it's hard for me to feel that I do it justice. The people who serve in so many ways to make things better for you, to lift the hearts of the body of Christ, in all of the areas of your serving, we are deeply grateful. Um, Nikki Florentine comes along and just beautifies that table. Is that not beautiful? We haven't given applause for that in a while. Could you just thank the Lord for this gift? Um, and my list is always longer than I should take the time to say, but among others, with all that Joe Gorman is doing continuously and all that Jody is doing continuously in managing details and managing logistics, I want to say a big shout out and a thank you to Ian Eberly, who's with his parents. He and Hannah are with their parents in uh, Virginia today. But Ian Eberly has taken on the task of uh, upgrading our live streaming. And it's been kind of a thing in process for a while. So, and Ian just, not only does he do it excellently, but he does it with passion. He's just got a heart for it. Every, in fact, it surprised me. It caught me by surprise two or three times exchanging a text or an email about the camera, the equipment, the different things. And I said, uh, I said, well, Ian, thank you. I so appreciate you doing this. He said, oh, I'm excited about it. <laughs> and I said, wow, I like that. So I'm really grateful to Ian and uh, pray for him these next couple of weeks. I think he's got a lot of different things to do technically in the sanctuary that will help us to be able to do that. Secondly, um, you know we've been looking at uh, this chair project and 
we've considered a, our board and friends have invited, we've been invited to just give input in your thoughts and many of you have given us helpful thoughts and, re, and reflections and we deeply appreciate that. And uh, consideration now has moved to buying chairs like the one you see here and we want to invite you again this week, we won't have much more time, we've got to wrap this decision up uh, right after I get back from Virginia. And so look at the chair, sit in the chair, uh, comment on the chair, um, help, send me a note if you, you, you want to make a comment about the chair. Uh, this is the one that we will be buying most likely unless anything changes in our plan. And then with that, we've, we've looked at a number of fabric choices with all the considerations of this, of this dwelling place and, and, and how it would look best. And they were narrowed down pretty quickly to two. And so I've gotten some larger uh, sections of the two that people have identified within the congregation to say, you know, either of these would be of interest. Somebody's not going to like one terribly, and somebody else is probably not going to like one. But uh, in a good faith and uh, collaborative congregational way, we've sought to make this an open process that people can give input. So these, these uh, two fabric choices will be over here. Please feel free to, Becky, walk these extras over there. Maybe you can just set them out at different points. So those are extras so people could take a look at that. And again, we welcome your input. We, we can't, obviously can't promise that we'll take every suggestion because one person's suggestion may directly, you know, directly collide with another suggestion. But, but I can say, and I say it with real gratitude and joy about the board of trustees of our church and the way that God has graced us to function is that there's a genuine and deep and prayerful um, commitment to making these kinds of things that we need to process done in a way that is uh, collaborative and um, committed to maximum participation of, of, of people in the body of Christ. Third announcement today is kind of um, just a community announcement. Again, we're invited to be a part of the men's prayer breakfast uh, that's been an ongoing Carroll County men's prayer breakfast for, goodness, I think 16 or 17 years now. And this year's event is on October the 1st. And uh, Lou, if you just wave for a minute, uh, Brother Lou's over here with extra tickets. So guys, if you hadn't gotten signed up for that, uh, we'd like to see all of you on October 1st at that men's prayer breakfast. And then also, I just want to say a big thank you to my great friend, Jim Mingle. Um, and I appreciate Jim and Sandy so much. And I know you do too. And um, I asked Jim if he would bring the word of God to you next week. When Becky and I are taking a little postponed vacation, we're going over to Williamsburg, Virginia for about eight days, and um, I just appreciate Brother Jim so much and uh, ask you not only to warmly welcome Brother Jim next Sunday to bring a message to you from his heart, but also to invite friends to be, to be with you, to just to um, share in our times together as we worship together, and uh, again, so thank you, Jim. Give Jim a big hand of appreciation, would you? I appreciate it. Um, I, I did take the liberty to tell one guest recently that the who's going to probably be here that Sunday that that uh, he is a world class, a a world record breaking weightlifter, as well. And a lot of people in church might not have known that, but Jim is a world record-breaking weightlifter who coaches and mentors uh, guys in um, fitness and weightlifting as a part of his big heart for discipleship. It's a part, you know, you think about it, everything we're called to do and every sphere we're called to function in, in our gifts, is a part of the discipling call. It is go, 
go and make disciples. And God uses the gifts in the body of Christ to do that. So we appreciate all the gifts that he gives. Well, today, as we turn a corner, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, today, and I, what I think of as the launching of the Galilean portion of the Lord's ministry in the Gospels, we see a vital contrast early in this text. I'm going to bring you to that in a moment. But I'm tying it in, of course, to the, to the mission that we're embracing as a church body. And in many ways, the story of our call to be a missionary supporting congregation is a, is a life-giving seed that is planted in the lives of God's people. And at times it may look like it's lain dormant. And for different reasons, sometimes the focus is fading in people's eyes as to why the church is called to mission. And that's beyond the scope of what we want to say today, except I just want to touch on the fact that missionary opportunities that uh, we're grateful to embrace are not acts of pure charity like sometimes they're presented. No, they are an expression, they are an extension of who we are. That is, anything God may put in our path that we have the honor of supporting and blessing in a mission context, whether it's really close at home, as we pray for our uh, ministries that are very vital, that we support, such as Christian Farmers Outreach and as Alpha Pregnancy Center. And as I've mentioned, we've made a renewed, a fairly new connection with this uh, wonderful, wonderful center, saving babies' lives, loving on young moms, just right over a few miles from here that has been reflagged as the center for pregnancy concerns. And they've done so much to save babies in Carroll County and to love on moms and to provide resources, and we are excited to be alongside them. But today then, we, we not only close to home, but we, we um, launch our eyes, we cast our eyes across the, the oceans, and we thank the Lord again today as a church body for what's happening in Challenge Farm in Katali, Kenya, and the focus for this part may, again, is relatively a small thing in, in, in the bigger scheme of things, and yet it is so vital for all that takes place in the ministry there. And I'm excited today that just to invite you to take one of these offering envelopes, a simple way you could do that if you'd like to. You can mark it on the envelope. You can just write Kenya, or you can even put the word corn. Is that okay, Jody? We'll just say Kenya or corn on the, on the designation line. And put an offering that you have on your heart to help with buying the corn product that is so vital in Kenya. Now, we're just going to invite you to join with 25 bags or $28 each for a bag of corn. It is crucial for what's happening there. And in all that, that's happening now with, as we said last week, 27 new students that have just come on to the grounds of the program, some new directions with some new staff that are involved in taking on some director roles. And it's an exciting time, actually, for Challenge Farm in Katali, Kenya. 
and we were going to send 25 from our church and ask you to add to that. Well, already, since I mentioned that, 13 more bags have been added to that, so we're at 38. Now, wouldn't it be great if Liberty Church family together could send 100 bags in all of, um, of corn to Kenya, the money to buy those bags? So, so you just ask the Lord to show you whatever he'd have you to do, and you can put it on that um, offering envelope if you'd like, uh, two, three, four, five bags, whatever is on your mind, one bag. And Or you can even just put it on the check. Uh, it'll be designated if you put it on the check for that, uh, that purpose. And we want to invite you to do it also to join with prayer for Challenge Farm. And then I'm excited as well to say that as we renew our focus on this, um, you get a personal opportunity to ask questions, to learn more about Challenge Farm next Sunday, because while we're away, unfortunately, our, our schedules coincided that way, but while we're away, Janice Airy is our beloved Janice, who's a vital part of this church for so many years, was secretary down the hall here for over five years, and uh, long, she and Jody helped launch so much of what we're doing, have done in kids' ministry through these years, and um, we welcome you to welcome Janice back home for a for a Sunday visit, and I asked her yesterday if Janice, while she's here, would, I said, Janice, would you mind, before service during Cafe Liberty time and after service, would you just go over by the Challenge Farm table and just be available to answer questions? She's the expert on all the, the sponsorships, all the specific needs. She's the U.S.-based administrator in Pensacola, Florida, for all that um, is the directors do on the ground in Katale, Kenya. So, We'd love for you to meet Janice if you don't know her yet, those of you who don't do, to welcome her back home. Uh, but uh, think of anything you might like to say or to share, or maybe you've got something you want to offer to send as a, an extra love offering of some kind. You're welcome to share that with Janice as well. Well, now as you open your Bible to Luke chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to think about how this mission ignition is reflected in the messianic mission of Jesus because everything we talk about, whether it's a specific outreach or it is something that is ongoing as our commitment to quite a number of career missionaries, the director of Challenge Farm, for example, Sherry Thompson, has been one of those for us for 21 years, and we're so grateful for all that Sherry does. Again, Janice is like her right-hand person in the States for all that she's done, and Sherry's back in the U.S. now in North Carolina. But Sherry Thompson is one of those. Larry and Stephanie Kraft are another. Uh, Dirk and Elizabeth Wood are one we've supported on a sporadic basis and want to renew that in South Africa. And these career missionaries carry a particular kind of challenge. And we're going to talk about that on another occasion. But today, when you open your Bible to Luke 4, beginning at verse 16 once again, I want you to make a connection here, as you can see on the screen, to a, a, a vital turning point that Jesus signaled here. Now, what you see in this chapter, to very quickly capsulize it, was not only the Nazareth synagogue that we're going to revisit now here for a few minutes to go to the heart of what he announced, but then look at this on the screen as a way to connect why this happened in this fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. What we see here is that after the message that we're going to look at in Nazareth, you know that a reaction from the crowd suddenly reversed. They'd been 
sitting in wonder at the gracious words that came from the lips of Jesus. But then when Jesus signaled from two Old Testament stories in the synagogue, when Jesus signaled the fact that God Almighty was sending the Messiah with great mercy for non-Jewish people, and that the greatest miracles, that the greatest breakthroughs, that the great manifestation of God's good news was going to reach into the lives of people that those living in a tiny village with only one culture and only one mindset could not even begin to imagine. It's a pretty dramatic contrast. And then Jesus began to minister around the communities around the Sea of Galilee at one event where hundreds gathered at the door of a home that he was using in Capernaum. And well into the night, demons came out of those afflicted. Blind eyes were opened. Lepers were cleansed. The lame walked. The deaf were hearing. And a magnificent move of God's grace and glory characterized all that happened there in Capernaum even to a more, we might say, mundane miracles, if you could call it that, in that in the midst of all of that, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law got sick with a fever, and they brought Peter's mother-in-law and said, would you touch her? And he touches Peter's mother-in-law, and the fever evaporates immediately, and she's healed. And this entire sort of a ongoing cascade of miraculous healings then culminates with the Lord Jesus being literally besieged by crowds in Capernaum, begging him to stay there and make that the center of his operation. You can imagine why, if in the midst of a time where you're seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, and it's, it's all because of his touch and his love, wouldn't you be tempted to say, just stay here, Jesus, you know, not only do we have, you know, we not only have a, a, an office for you, we'll, we'll build you a palace. I mean, you know, you'll have uh, honorary parking. I mean, you'll, you'll, have, uh, you, you'll have all the pizza you can eat. I mean, you know, we'll, what, whatever it takes. Stay with us, right? Well, then, here's, the, here's why I wanted to set this up. Would you read this scripture from the screen with me now? Here is what Jesus said, and I see this 43rd verse of Luke 4 as a key turning point to describe how the Nazareth synagogue is a great example for us of how dangerous it is for us to get into ingrown thinking where we're only focused on our little private world. So here's the text, and I'd like to ask you to read it aloud with me. But he said... I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Now it may seem like a somewhat of a just a common sense observation. Of course, if you're seeing that kind of miracle, you wouldn't want to keep it to yourself. You'd be like the old... Uh, Mercedes-Benz commercial years ago when they developed some technology that would be old hat now, but it was new at the time. 
some uh, life-saving technology that would prevent accidents from being fatal, and their tagline was, this kind of news is too good not to share with everybody. Well, our calling is far greater than the Mercedes-Benz bumper safety technology. Our calling is, like Christ modeled himself, that we must go. We must go to these regions, to these areas not yet reached. In every aspect of our lives, the church is called to be a missionary movement. We're a people of mission. And this is a reminder as we see the vivid contrast between the people of Capernaum and their reaction and what Jesus tells the people of Capernaum as over against the, the drastic overreaction and hostility in Nazareth. It's quite interesting if you look at that map of the Sea of Galilee, the little town of Nazareth nestled over kind of more closer to the Valley of Jezreel, a little bit further over to the west from the, from the sea, and the Capernaum up at the top of the Sea of Galilee, the distance between the two is probably less than 20 miles. But the vast difference in the reaction and the response to Jesus is striking because the very people in the synagogue of Nazareth that had been listening in rapt attention until he got to that part about God sent the prophet Elijah to a widow in Zarephath, way up in Sire and Tidon, in Tyre and Sidon, where the miracle came to show God's mercy for the entire world. It's like a model miracle. It's like a microcosmic miracle. And these microcosm type of miracles were signs that good news is coming. And they signaled the scope and the vision of the Messiah's mission. Now, this is one reason I asked you when the children were here earlier to read with me from that 49th chapter of Isaiah, because in that same chapter, not part of what we read, there's a description of the Lord himself as if God, a kind of a play on words we might say, as if God had made the Messiah to be like a great, like if God was a great warrior and, the, and there's a quiver of arrows on his belt, and hidden in that quiver of arrows is the most precious, priceless, most powerful, most significant arrow ever launched from his bow. And of course, that would be none other than the eternal only begotten Son of God. But the poetic language of Isaiah 49 is striking here. And again, it's worded in a way, in Isaiah 49:2, is worded as if it's the very mouth of the Lord speaking about what God the Father's plan was to conceal him until the right time came. Remember that great phrase of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 that says, In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. 
made under the law. Why? That we might redeem those who were under the law. That we might become sons and daughters of God by faith. Now here in Isaiah 49, it's as if Messiah himself is speaking it in the first person. And again, I'll invite you to read this text from Isaiah 49 with me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. When we heard that question from Nathaniel under the fig tree, one of his friends said, let's go follow Jesus. And he said, could anything good come out of where? Nazareth. That is another fulfillment of exactly what the prophet Isaiah had said. That is, in a tiny town called Nazareth, insignificant in those days, and still a very common, ordinary little community even now, in that place, God had concealed, or God had, had, had put within the quiver of his, of his great kingdom plan that he would unveil the singular arrow that we all needed most. And so if you go back in your Bible to the text at Luke 4, verse 17, beginning at that verse, notice that as, as Jesus is back in that synagogue scene that we looked at last Sunday, we can see that he is given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. If you have your Bible, look at that in your own copy of the treasure of God's Word. I'm reading the New International Version with you. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this Proverbs to me, physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Well, it's embedded in the very reading Jesus gave them that I just summarize quickly here that every aspect of the good news to the poor would bring about a dramatic transformation in the human condition. And the, and the ministry up around Capernaum, 20, maybe 23 or 4 miles away, that ministry around Capernaum was demonstrating it not only in his teaching but in these wonderful signs. And yet here in Nazareth, though listening with avid attention, 
there was something stirring there that reflects a tendency that's real in the human heart. And it is simply, and it's a real human tendency, we all are inclined to cling to what we've found some security in. And in the very nature of a church like ours, we're called to think about these things with a new perspective. How has God worked in my life to bring me to this point in my journey with Christ? We can rejoice in that, and yet God has used many different resources to bring us to where we are. And in your life, there may have been a moment where you sense the power of God so powerfully in your life in a certain setting, a certain song was playing, a certain message was given, or in some very unusual setting, God sent somebody to you that brought you love and grace and understanding in a, in a way that you'd never fully grasped before. Or maybe even alone, you've just been were reading a book or you were reading your Bible and, and something became very real to you. Uh, but as, as we know, all of those avenues God uses are resources in the master's hand to bring an awakening that sets a brother from one background and ethnicity and experience and family system next to a brother or sister from a totally different ethnic background, a totally different denominational or family system, a totally different experience. And the common, the common powerful bond is Christ himself. So when Jesus is personally presented to the synagogue of Nazareth, the very people who knew him since he was a little boy, ironically, they become the ones who cannot fathom that this is none other than God's promised Messiah. And the demonstration of that with the story of Elijah going to the widow of Zarephath, up at the Tyre and Sidon region, an area where the common people of, of that part of Galilee thought of them as the outsider, as the pagan. And Jesus says, God didn't just do this once with Elijah, he did it with Elijah and Elisha. He sent the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament outside the borders of Israel. One to a widow in Zarephath who was afraid she was going to die from the famine and the prophet simply said, give me some of that bread. And in her willingness to give water and bread to the prophet, God honored her simple faith and multiplied her supply so that she saw the mighty God of Israel in his great hand of power. And then the, the, the general of the Syrian army, when Elisha was sent to Naaman the Syrian, who was a leper, and Jesus points out here in Luke 4, there were lots of lepers in Israel. But God sent Elisha to the general of the Syrian army, of all people. A guy that they would have had every reason to feel was not only an outsider, but a hostile outsider. It would be analogous for us if if we learn that suddenly you think of some political figure, and I'm not going to get into names, of course, but you think of some political figure or some notable figure on the world stage that you might find abhorrent, and you find out that 
God miraculously sends a mighty miracle to their life that delivers them from a dread disease. Would you rejoice? Well, I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would. Why? How do I know that? Because Romans 5.5 says the love of God is poured out in our hearts. Amen? But the challenge was there, the, the the temptation. And it goes deeper than that as we see Jesus gives these wonderful declarations. He says, I was called to give this good news to the receptive of heart. And those who receive it can have release from captivity, the healing of the brokenhearted, the opening of the eyes of the blind. And then it seems as if in this text, there is a stair-step quality in which the concluding statement wraps up everything else as if it all leads to this. To proclaim, that is, a liberty to those who are bruised. This is the only time in the Greek New Testament that this particular word is used. And it is striking because it's the same word used in, a, in the Hebrew. The Hebrew version of the text is the same word as the word used of Messiah in Isaiah 42 when it says, He will not crush a bruised reed. So Jesus tenderly comes alongside the hearts and lives of people who feel crushed. Now, today, you and I know there are many people who internally inside are feeling inwardly oppressed. The great focus of this good news is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah. He gives good news and puts it in our hands freely He literally pours his good news into our lives and says, because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you can confidently say to a crushed, battered soul, Jesus knows who you are. Christ has already paid the price to redeem you, to set you free, to give you his hope and his healing. And when you put your trust in Christ, the dynamic power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit brings you to this last phrase there at verse 19. What did he culminate the entire promise in? I've come for healing to the brokenhearted, the recovering of sight to the blind. The the, the Hebrew, the Greek literally means in that oppression that I'm going to send the crushed ones into deliverance. I'm going to send them, I'm going to send the crushed soul into a place of deliverance and restoration. And how, how do we know and what, what does that lead to? Well, that leads to this final phrase where Jesus does something very, very significant in the quoting of the text as he reads the scroll in the synagogue of Nazareth. Do you see, if you compare side by side Isaiah's text and the text that Jesus read, you see that Jesus gets to the place where the crushed are sent into a place of deliverance and we're proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The next phrase 
in Isaiah is the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus intentionally stops the reading abruptly in the text and says, this day the scripture is fulfilled. Now, I was reflecting on this and noting and thinking how what in essence Jesus does in the year of the Lord's favor is he announces that in this new covenant era, God has opened wide the place of deliverance. God has graciously opened the door that you can receive his redeeming grace. And yes, as is often true in prophecy, the day of vengeance of our God is on the calendar. But this wide space of opportunity for every soul on the planet to be reached with the redeeming fact of the risen Lord. That defines this era. That is, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord has synonyms in the Bible. It's sometimes called the acceptable time. It's sometimes called the year of his favor. And I found this really striking. Found this just by surprise, and I said, wow. The last verse of Isaiah's prior chapter, just before the reading Jesus read from the scroll, the very last phrase of Isaiah 60, 22, is this, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. And then in the text, the very next phrase is, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me. Now, friends, it's almost as if we could stand here today and say that Jesus in that synagogue of Nazareth was standing before the, the very people he had grown. They knew him when he was a kid. We know Jesus was fully a human little boy, don't we? How many of you just love it at Christmas time when you think about how little, little, little Jesus, he was out playing with the kids. I'll bet if they played stickball, I don't know how they played ball, but if they played stickball, Jesus was playing stickball. Did you know that? If, he, if they were out there getting their, uh, getting their sandals dirty, maybe muddy, getting into some water, maybe mom had said, please don't do that. But they did it anyway, like every little boy. You know, they came home with muddy sandals. How many of you think Jesus may have come home with muddy sandals sometimes to Mary? This is a normal kid. Why? Because he became the God-man. He entered into our world fully, never ceased to be God, never ceased to be the deity for one split second, and yet bore our humanity in fullness. And this is the one announcing to the synagogue in Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And it's like in this text, it's like there's this ascending quality of the beginning of the good news. The good news is there. The good news to all who were poor in spirit. And then it culminates through the crushed, the blinded eyes opened, set at liberty those who are bruised, the healing of the brokenhearted, and it's a mighty arc of truth that leads to this great fact from Jesus' deep knowledge of the Old Testament, and that is the Jubilee year. Put it together now, synonyms. The year of the Lord's favor, the year of our God, 
the acceptable year, the acceptable time, the time of my favor, all of those phrases are synonyms in the Bible for the Jubilee. Now, the text of the Old Testament tells us that they were told specifically, count out the time to the Jubilee, and that was very specific in Leviticus 25. How would you count it out? Well, you would take every seven years, the Israeli farmers knew to have a sabbatical year, let the land rest. But then if you happened to be living in that time where you had gotten to the seven sevens of years, now you're what they called, a group of seven years was called a week, a week of years, a figurative word. So if you said, Seven weeks of years, you're saying seven times seven, 49 years. And the sabbatical year would be the seventh of a series of seven rest years. Every seven years, a rest year. Every seven years, every seven years. And then the 49th year comes, and the God had commanded through Moses that after that 49th year, you would then begin on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the shofar would blow, and you would then begin, what? The 50th year. And you would begin the 50th year, and three times, like a resounding, wonderful bell in a bell tower, three times, in Leviticus 25, verses 8 to 11, three times God says, it is the jubilee for you. It is the jubilee year. This is the jubilee. So the jubilee year was this commanded principle of the Old Testament that on the 50th year there would be the blowing of the shofar and something astonishing was to become a part of the lives of the people. And what was that? It was first that all debts would be canceled. <laughs> that all debts would be canceled. They would be forgiven of all debts. Secondly, that all the slaves would be released to be returned to their home. <laughs> and third, <laughs> that every piece of inherited land that had been in your family that had been forfeited through debt or travel Every forfeited piece of real estate was returned to the original family owner. <laughs> now, this is the principle. God says, in that 50th year, you'll have a year of release. Those bondages, those obligations are now canceled. <laughs> and everybody gets a new start. It's like... Only much better. <laughs> it's like Monopoly. You go around, go, you collect $200. It's like you start again here. It's a complete, complete restart. And it's so no notable. This vision of Jubilee was so notable and impactful about reflecting the fact that God created human beings to be free that the founders of our republic, the founders of the United States in the Continental Congress of 1776, adopted that very phrase in Leviticus 25, and they inscribed it on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. The phrase they inscribed 
was this constitution and this declaration of independence in essence is to be is to be reflective of God's principle to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all shout out the word all all its inhabitants in other words God used this very principle to help shape in the early years of the founding of our republic and understanding of the freedom of the soul. And when Jesus read that scroll and he ended it at that crucial point, yes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the opening of sight to the blind, recovery of sight to the blind, to send those who are crushed in spirit into a place of deliverance, to proclaim the jubilee of God. And when he read that, it's like Jesus personally walked into the canvas of Scripture. And the canvas had the living person of the promised Son. In Luke 4.21, when he said, This Scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing, he was now signaling that God is personally bringing about these very promises. And one, of course... Probably this, the most significant way we can even think of this is that it all pointed to the conquest of the cross because in the cross, Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus took the curse that belongs to us by becoming accursed on our behalf. Why, he said, because the Old Testament inscribed this eternally on the corridors of history. That anyone who dies hanging naked on a crude tree is thought of as accursed. But Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed on our behalf. That we might receive, Galatians 3.14, the promise of the Spirit by faith. Paul amplified it in 2 Corinthians 5.19 when he said, God the Father was in the Messiah, the Son, reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their sins against them, but placing all the penalty of sin on the crucified one. So in essence, when Jesus walked into that canvas of prophetic scripture, he personally fulfilled it and revealed the heart of Luke 4, which is that Jesus is our jubilee. Oh yes, that day of vengeance is coming. And that day of ultimate retribution is coming. And Christ the Redeemer is preparing a people, a bride, who can live and thrive because of his life. But now, in the now... We're not looking for a jubilee that man creates. We are rejoicing in the one who is our jubilee. Four take-homes today I think you could get from it. One, receive for your own, from your own heart, for your own heart, that you're in the year of favor. Could you just say with me today aloud, I'm in the year of God's favor. <laughs> I'm in the year of God's... Now put it this way, I'm in the jubilee. 
Jesus is my jubilee. And very simply, that, that means that all the things he promised there are accessible by faith and that we're to say, I'm not looking across the horizon for some great miracle train to come after me. I'm not waiting for an angel to show up at my bed and give me new direction. No, God can do anything he chooses and use any means he chooses, including angels. Amen. But what my focus is, Christ himself. Secondly, I want to urge you today when you go to release the captives that in your own life, if there's any lingering shadow, release any captives that you might be keeping. Now, how could I be keeping captives? I was sitting in a counseling session years ago. This is very generic. No way that anybody could ever know, even in another state. I was sitting in a counseling session in Mississippi, and a guy was wrapped up in bitterness. I mean, wrapped up in bitterness, deep. And, I, and I'm not one to give in divisions. But the Lord, I just, as I was counseling, I had this vision. I could see this guy, and he's sitting across from me, and it's like in my mind I could see chains wrapped around his brain. And it was like chains that had been in a furnace area where they were covered with soot. They were soot-soaked chains. And every step we took in counseling was to break the chains, break the chains. But the grimy bitterness was all over him. And I remember thinking to myself how great it is that you can say, Jesus, our Jubilee, has already paid it all. You can not only have the chains broken, but you can be cleansed and set free. Now, some of us are keeping ourselves bound by holding others mentally captive in that brain. (laughs) The Jubilee says you can let the captives go. Some of those captives... Lingering shadows of bad experiences in your life. They may be somebody who did you wrong. I mean, did you really wrong? I should probably say right now, every head bow and every eye closed, right? But if, I, but if, if we're honest, how many of you know you can get hurt on a level that's deeper than you could even explain to somebody? Am I, am I right? But God says, even those who've wounded you profoundly and have never acknowledged it. <laughs> oh, you... In the Jubilee, you are empowered to say, I let the captives go. Hallelujah. (laughs) And then, I have a great Jubilee prayer for you. Very quickly, you can write it down. Ephesians 1, 16 to 23. I call it the eye drop prayer. It's it's God as your ophthalmologist, okay? And Ephesians 1, 16 to 23 is a great prayer. And you can pray the prayer about opening the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit, and God will honor that prayer. It's the eyedrop prayer. In the Jubilee, every day of our lives, God gives our eyes eyedrops, kingdom eyedrops, so that we can see what we couldn't see otherwise. And then, of course, what we can all do, put a priority on the mission, the mission of being people of the Jubilee. Carry this mission into your world. Could we pray together? Oh Lord, I thank you today that we can embrace Jesus as our jubilee, but I pray it's not theoretical. I pray that it's not just on a mental level, but that we would say, yeah, I see it. I see it. Jesus literally, literally, while the synagogue in Nazareth was in, beginning to be in an uproar and literally tried to kill him, tried to take him to the brow of that hill and throw him across the cliff, 
In that very moment, Lord, you were stepping out of eternity into the very canvas of Scripture, and you were giving us that assurance. In Jesus Christ, we have a living, present tense jubilee, the freedom to forgive and the freedom to be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.